So, time goes fast, doesn't it? Remember last year when you started meditating? (laughs) Come a long way, long way. Let's start with a little poem by Hafiz. O wondrous creatures, by what strange miracle do you so often not smile? O wondrous creatures, by what strange miracle do you so often not smile? Most likely, it's because, like all of us, we are so wrapped up in our individual drama, our own story, and what we have to do and what we have to get and achieve and who we are, and that we fail to recognize the miracle going around, going on all around us and inside of us all the time. We come to take it for granted, this life. I interviewed Swami Muktananda once, and uh, I asked him if he performed miracles, you know, produced things out of, out of the air like some of the Swamis do. And he said, no, I don't need to perform miracles. I just tell people to look at the blood pumping through their body. Feel that blood pumping through your body consistently. He said, that's enough of a miracle. I think that one of the greatest gifts for me of the Dharma has been to bring me into a closer intimacy with the mystery of things, the mystery of myself and the universe. I mean, breath, I began using my breath when I started meditating as an object of concentration, a place to place my awareness. But over the years, it has become more than that. It's it's become a sign of life. And it has allowed me to, to let that fact that I am alive kind of reverberate and brings into my life a, a sense of mystery, a sense of wonder. I want to talk tonight about enchantment, awe. They're really revolutionary acts. Lao Tzu said, When the people lack a sense of awe, there will be trouble in the empire. One reason why we should cultivate awe and amazement is because then we will perhaps be more satisfied with the life we are living, our our actual existence, and not have to rearrange the universe so much and not have to consume so much and It's an antidote to consumerism, being in touch with the mystery, because it's so full in and of itself. Einstein said, One cannot help but be in awe when one contemplates the mysteries of eternity, of life, of the marvelous structure of reality. It is enough if one tries merely to comprehend a little of this mystery every day. Never lose a holy curiosity. 
Albert Einstein. Never lose a holy curiosity. So to arouse your holy curiosity, I'm going to lead you in a, in a little reflection this evening uh, on the mysteries of life in the universe. I call it, this reflection, be here, wow. <laughs> and in this reflection, I will draw on, on, the, on the Buddha Dharma, but also on the information uh, of modern science, which is currently revealing a whole new story about who we are and where we are in the scheme of things. And really, the, the object of science, the project of science, is the same as the project of meditation in some respects. Investigating ourselves. The other night in Gill's talk, he said that, you know, go be a naturalist. Go into the wilderness of self. I, I love that uh, image of, of the scientist. You know, you're going in. And the Buddha uh, asked us to be scientists, to use the scientific method. Be as objective as you can possibly be about yourself as the subject. That's what mindfulness is. This is, is happening now. You, take, you go in, in this wilderness of self as a naturalist, and you take notes. You know, there's... There's my mother. There's, there's some bear scat. There's, you know. I think that I, I never was very interested in science in school. I don't think I really started getting interested in science until I started meditating. I think that the two kind of went together for me. I also began to realize that science was all about me. And so that got me interested. <laughs> you know, gravity's what holds me to the earth, and I'm made of these elements and these atoms. And so it's really a search for our identity, and it is shifting in, in this era that we're living through. It's shifting for us by being here at this meditation retreat as well. Who am I? You begin to look at the phenomena happening, and where did that come from? You know, who's generating those thoughts? You know, who asked for this emotion, this confusion, this sadness? But I want to start with uh, the universe. The Mysteries of the Cosmos. Carl Sagan said, if you're going to make apple, apple pie from scratch, first you have to make a universe. <laughs> there was a great article in the New Yorker magazine a few uh, months ago about parallel universes, you know, and this strange phenomena that physicists and, and mathematicians are starting to talk about, that there are many parallel universes, and Somebody asked one of the scientists, uh, I just don't think I can imagine, you know, a, a parallel universe. And the scientist said to him, if you hadn't been born in this one, could you imagine this one? Could you conjure this up? Could you believe that this is actually happening? This could happen? All these little beings running around, little pieces of matter and wondering... What's going on? What's going on? What am I supposed to do? 
<laughs> the, opening, the opening page of my internet search engine is the NASA astronomy picture of the day. And the NASA scientists, uh, they put a different picture up every day of uh, something that in the universe, you know, and uh, phenomenal, phenomenal. Every day is just mind-boggling uh, views of this universe we're living in, the vastness of it, the contents of it. Uh, I recently saw a p- picture of a newly discovered galaxy, the Sombrero Galaxy, which is is shaped a little like a Mexican hat, and contains, <laughs> contains 600 million suns. Now, you probably read things like that every day, right? <laughs> Why aren't we all just falling to our knees and just, you know, walking around shaking each other, you know? <laughs> Less than a hundred years ago, we knew of one galaxy in the universe. The latest estimate is that there are 100 to 200 billion galaxies. This is not solar systems. This is galaxies. 1 to 200 billion containing 30 to 50 million billion suns. Count them, you know, they counted them. They, f- they figured it out. <laughs> now, the, the scientists say that it all came out of virtually nothing. There was, there was basically nothing, they said. They, they actually started saying that. And then they, they said, you know, there was nothing. And then there was a big bang. And then some people said, but wait a minute, if there was nothing, what banged? <laughs> So they went back and they, they did some more figuring and they, they finally decided there was something after all. There was a, a dot. A singularity, a point smaller than an atom. I, I want to write this new creation story, you know, and I'm going to kind of draw from the inspiration of the Bible. In the beginning, there was a dot. And it was good. <laughs> anyway, so they, 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 just, they said that uh, the, the dot exploded in a big bang. And it happened 13.7 billion years ago today. <laughs> Happy birthday to you, too. (laughs) So, out of that dot, out of the explosion of that dot, came 100, 200 billion galaxies. Now, isn't that more probable than the idea of a God who created everything in six days? (laughs) Take your pick. Which is more fantastic? (laughs) Here's an image for you. A trillionth of a trillionth of a trillionth of a second after the Big Bang, the universe was six feet in diameter. (laughs) It's a universe you get your mind around, you know. (laughs) 
And now, of course, uh, you know, the estimates are billions and billions and billions of light years, you know, the time it takes light to travel. Just, and, and what's out there? Well, there may be a lot of life out there. They're finding thousands now. The, Kepler, the new Kepler Space Telescope is finding thousands of planets that could support life. Planets in the Goldilocks zone, going around their suns. Uh, and uh, I think it'd be really great if we found life on, on other planets. It would take the pressure off of us, kind of, you know? <laughs> we would no longer have to carry the entire burden of meaning in the cosmos, you know? It's not just about us. Of course, we all, I think we all have this image of life on another planet would just be kind of like amoebic, amoebic form, or, you know, we can't imagine there could be something as sophisticated as us on other planets. But very possible. Now, the astrophysicists, as, as I said, are, are talking about other universes. And in some Buddhist cosmologies, there are many, many, many universes. The Dalai Lama was once asked if they had the Big Bang in Tibetan Buddhist cosmology. And he said, mm, oh, oh, yes, but bang, bang, bang. Many bangs, many bangs, many universes. The Hindus, the Hindus say their, their creator deity, Brahma, every time he blinks his eyes shut, a universe is destroyed. Every time he opens his eyes again, another universe is created. You can try that for yourself. It actually works. <laughs> many, many worlds. Many worlds. We don't. We, we don't even. We don't even begin. We don't have a, a, any idea what's going on. Actually, the more we understand, the less we we know. The more we or know, we less we understand. Maybe that's it. That's better. Um, this is uh, from the Avatamsaka Sutra, which is uh, a Mahayana Sutra where the Buddha is trying to explain how many worlds are known to him. And he begins calculating in this sutra, uh, 10 to the 10th power times 10 to the 10th power equals 10 to the 20th power. That calculation goes on for several full pages, and uh, near the final summation it reaches a number 35 digits long. And then it goes on to say that that number squared is an incalculable. (laughs) An incalculable to the fourth power is a boundless a boundless to the fourth power is an incomparable, an incomparable to the fourth power is an innumerable, an innumerable to the fourth power is an unaccountable, an unaccountable to the fourth power is an unthinkable, an unthinkable to the fourth power is an immeasurable, an immeasurable to the fourth power is an unspeakable, an unspeakable to the fourth power is a, an untold, which is unspeakably unspeakable. It says this in the Avatamsaka Sutra, you know. An untold multiplied by itself is a square untold. That's how many... That's how many worlds are known to a Buddha. (laughs) So, what about this world? 
universe is actually, when you look at some of what, what has been discovered about it, you realize it's, it's really a trickster. It's like the Leela that uh, Charta was talking about is, is, is at play here. For instance, um, the physicists say it looks like, you know, there's a lot of stuff here, but there's hardly anything here at all. Because everything we perceive is made of atoms. And atoms are 99.999% empty space. Maybe back in high school you might remember your physics teacher said, you take the nucleus of an atom, you blow it up millions of times till it's the size of a pea. The electron going around that nucleus will be the size of a grain of sand, and it'll be a half a mile away. There's hardly any matter to matter. There's hardly anything there. So why don't we just fall right through the floor, right through the earth? It's a magic act. The whole thing is a magic act. If your body's made of atoms, and atoms are mostly empty space... What is holding your clothes on? (laughs) Not only does the emperor have no clothes, the clothes hardly have any emperor. (laughs) We're all kind of optical illusions to each other. As they say in Zen, form is emptiness. Emptiness is form. It was really true. I'll say this just because I think it's really funny. The, you know the universe is filled with the gas helium. It's everywhere, pretty much. pervades the universe. So that probably means my voice is an octave lower than it sounds to you right now. <laughs> that none of us have ever heard our true voices. Now, the physicists are coming to realize what the mystics have known for centuries, which is that consciousness plays a huge part in the creation of reality. The Copenhagen interpretation of quantum physics says, and I quote, there is no reality in the absence of observation. There is no reality in the absence of observation. One one physicist said, when we're looking, there are particles. When we're not looking, there are just probability waves or something like that. So I would like you all to participate with me in a little scientific experiment here tonight. Everybody, please look over. Well, no. Everybody, please look this way, to this side of the room. And would you please, you have to participate or it doesn't work. You have to turn, just turn your head and kind of look. Everybody look this way. Okay, that should mean the other side of the room has disappeared. (laughs) No, check it out. Somebody was peeking, I bet. (laughs) It's it's still there. There there is a story, maybe apocryphal, that that there's a group of uh, lamas in, in the Himalayas holding the world together by paying attention to it because they know we have to live through this karma. A haiku for you. No mind, no matter. No matter, never mind. <laughs> what, what I really love, though, is, is antimatter. You know, you read about it all the time. At the, at the Big Bang, there was 
a lot of matter created and uh, just a little less antimatter. Uh, and every time a, a particle of matter meets a particle of antimatter, they annihilate each other. And the discovery of antimatter leads me to believe that whoever or whatever created the universe in the first place was somewhat ambivalent. <laughs> you know, particle of matter, that will be so much trouble, particle of antimatter. You know, it just kept doing that, and finally... Luckily, there was a little bit more matter, if, if you consider it lucky that the universe is here. But... Really, what science is coming to is the understanding that there's really nothing here at all. Emptiness. The matter is gravitationally trapped light. It's a light show. As the Buddha said, it's a star at dawn, a bubble in a stream, a flash of lightning in the summer clouds, a flickering lamp, a phantom, a dream. One of my teachers, Silkney Rinpoche, said, you Westerners, you have a real problem. You think everything is so real. It's all ephemeral. Impermanence. You know, we talk a lot about impermanence, seeing it, you know, letting it seep into the marrow of our being. In the subatomic world is a great lesson in Anicca. It makes ordinary impermanence seem like a long nap. Physicists are now measuring change happening in a millionth of a trillionth of a second. They, they even gave it a new name. They call it attoseconds. Then they started measuring change happening in a billionth of a trillionth of a second. They started calling them zeptoseconds. Then they started measuring things changing in a trillionth of a trillionth of a second, and they called those yocto seconds. Now, my fantasy is that the physicists realized they were in a Marx Brothers routine. Because <laughs> now you've got atto, zepto, and yocto. <laughs> and the jokes are coming so fast, you know, you realize that maybe it's all a joke. So, let's get uh, more personal here in our reflection on the universe and ourselves. You may know it's extremely improbable that you are here in this particular body with this particular brain contemplating the improbability of your being here in this particular body in this particular brain. The condition that the Big Bang had to be just right or the universe wouldn't hap have happened like this. The size of a neutron or a proton were just a little bigger or a little smaller, or the electromagnetic force trying to pull the atoms apart was a little stronger. The nuclear force holding, holding the atom parts together was a little stronger or weaker 
the atoms would have come apart or, you know, then no elements would have been created. And then where would you be? No carbon, no oxygen, carbon-based life forms, oxygen-breathing life forms. And it all had to be calibrated. It all had to be just as it was. Scientists who study these kinds of things in the probability theory are just astonished that it happened the way it, way it happened. It's very elementary. Ele- elementary. I sometimes think we should uh, pay homage. We should have some kind of ritual to pay homage to the elements. We could chant the table of basic elements, I suppose. <laughs> Hydrogen, helium, lithium, beryllium, boron, carbon. It's kind of mantra quality, don't you think? (laughs) And the earth is in exactly the right place in relation to our sun to create the beings that we are. If we were a little closer to the sun, just a little closer. I mean, you could travel down the coast a thousand miles and see what the weather's like. <laughs> if we were a little closer to the sun, we may all be living at the, at the poles or underground or, you know, who knew? Who knows what, what could have, we could have turned out to be? Or a little further from the sun, all be woolly mammoths huddled around the equator. It's these particular conditions that created these particular beings. Scientists are amazed that the Earth has maintained a steady oxygen uh, oxygen rich atmosphere for most of the last three and a half billion years, with about 21% oxygen, uh, a little less, and complex beings like ours, uh, like us, would not have evolved. A little more and everything would have burned up. James Lovelock, who came up with the Gaia hypothesis, the Earth as a single living being, um, he wrote, the climate and chemical properties of the Earth now and throughout its history seem always to have been optimal for life. For this to have happened by chance is an unlikely, as, as unlikely as to survive unscathed a drive blindfold through rush hour traffic. Astonished that it turned out like this. E.O. Wilson, the great biologist, says, take a walk with me from the core of the planet to the surface. We'll take a long walk, and we walk for a month through molten rock and hot lava, and and then you come into hardening rock, and, and finally you get to a couple feet below the surface or a few yards below the surface, and you start to see little pieces of matter moving around so that seem to be shifting and changing and then beetles and worms and suddenly you burst on the surface and there are millions of species of life everywhere in every nook and cranny there is living beings and then you keep traveling a little further out and very quickly they disappear there's a few you know, mites hanging onto some dust. Okay, an airplane flies over, and then and it's nothing. 
And as far as we knew, you know, I mean, that's the only place life existed anywhere in the universe. Richard Dawkins, who's one of the very sort of uh, serious scientists that doesn't that doesn't uh, take any kind of exaggeration or miracle very lightly talk of it. Dawkins wrote in in his book uh, Mount Improbable, which is what he calls evolution. My overwhelming reaction to the story of evolution is one of amazement. The universe could so easily have remained lifeless and simple, just physics and chemistry, just the scattered dust of the cosmic explosion. The fact that it did not, the fact that life evolved out of nearly nothing some 10 billion years after the universe evolved out of literally nothing is a fact so staggering that I would be mad to attempt words to convey it properly. And even that is not the end of the matter. Not only is life on this planet amazing, and deeply satisfying to all whose senses have not become dulled by familiarity. The very fact that we have evolved the brain power to understand our evolutionary genesis redoubles the amazement and compounds the satisfaction. The Buddha sort of knew that uh, this was a very special incarnation, very unusual, very rare. He talks about the parable of the, the turtle let, let loose in the seven seas, blind turtle. And there's a yoke, there's a lifesaver. Someone throws that out. And the lifesaver's bobbing around on the seven seas. The chances that the turtle will come up uh, and hook the yoke are the same chances you have of being born a human So, make use of it. And how did we get like this? You know, I mean, the way we are with head and arms and legs and spine. It's been a long, interesting story. Life has just kept changing and doing this dance with the natural forces, with the elements. Uh, You know, for... A billion and a half years of life on this planet, there were two billion years, there was no legs because there was no land. It was only after land appeared that legs started to appear in creatures. Volcanoes erupt, continents bump into each other, ice ages come and go, and life has to find new ways of living, new growing new appendages, plumages, camouflage, new ways of sensing. Nature's like a great artist, and we are the works of art. The Buddha said, This body is not mine or anyone else's. It has arisen due to causes and conditions. He and Charlie Darwin would have gotten along really well. Really well, I think. Evolutionary science can be a powerful teaching of Dharma. A Nietzsche, certainly, 99% of all the species that have ever lived are extinct. Dukkha, certainly. 
conditions of life on this planet in, include some pain and suffering, at least some pain. But when we reflect on the many causes and conditions that have led to this life, not only does it arouse wonder and awe, but it's a profound message of anatta, of no self. We didn't create this. It's the result of all these elements coming together at at this particular moment in time and, and realizing these beings. And those elements will come apart because they're compounded elements. They're made of different things and they will come apart. I think the most profound spiritual message of the science of evolution is this. You are not your fault. I'd like you to, I invite you, and I would like it if you close your eyes just for a minute and feel your whole body seated here. I want to Just direct your attention inward here for a few minutes. And as you just feel, you don't have to get in any special position, you know, it's just, this is, it's not serious meditation here. All right, so realize how much, just feel the activity going on here in this body. Right now there are literally millions of brain cells firing. We hope. A veritable storm of electrical activity taking place inside your head. Meanwhile, the brain stem is busy monitoring your, monitoring your body temperature and rate of heartbeat. Your limbic system remains on alert for possible threats and opportunities. Even though you're just sitting here, it's still looking around where, where you know, it's got its antenna out. Oxygen is being inhaled, transported throughout your body, and then burned as fuel in the process of transforming the stored energy of the sun into your living energy. That's that heat you feel. In each and every second, millions of cells inside of you are dying, and millions of cells are being born. Chemicals that do the work of the brain, stomach, liver, and kidneys are being manufactured, secreted, Your immune system putting out antibodies, floating through the bloodstream looking for enemies. All, all for you. You don't have to do a thing. Okay, just, just, just to give you, you can open your eyes, just to give you a sense of all of the activity taking place inside of you right now without you directing any of it or doing a thing. Phenomenal processes taking place. Sometimes uh, I have I've come to sort of feel like in, in in the meditation practice in my my spiritual practice I've come to really understand my species self 
I've gained what I call evolutionary wisdom. I, I feel that the past is living through me. The past has created me and is living through me. And, and not, sometimes evolution has been feared because it, it debases the human, you know. It puts us in the same level as the other creatures of the planet. But over the years, it's brought me more of a sense of reverence for all of life and a sense of kinship. That what I said about the uh, you're not your fault and feeling all those things that are all those processes that are taking place inside of you without you being there really. I was once talking to Ramdas about how, you know, there's a kind of a sense that somebody else is doing this life, you know. You're just along for the ride. And I said to him, just, you know, on the spur of the moment, but not actually realizing that it was kind of funny, I said, yeah, a lot of the times I feel like I'm not the doer, I'm the dude. (laughs) That was fun. Just a couple of, we'll do some other things here. Just feel your stomach for a minute, and, and I want you to be aware that there are more living beings right there, right now, than all the humans that have ever lived on planet Earth. Billions of separate living beings inside of you. You need them for your life. They, they kind of are enjoying you, being inside of you. <laughs> they have roads and churches and, and schools and... <laughs> Whole civilizations in there. Now, there is some speculation that bacteria invented humans as a moving feedlot, you know. Get room and board and a tour of the neighborhood. But what, what becomes, uh, what becomes uh, clear, and one of the great molecular biologists who just died a month ago, about six weeks ago, uh, Lynn Margulis, who along with uh, Dorian Sagan wrote about uh, how beings, the symbiotic relationship between beings and how, they mer- how the early uh, single-celled beings merged and, and put their, their little uh, appendages together to create multi-celled beings. Cooperation, in other words, is, is also a big part of evolution. Anyway, Lynn Margulis says, uh, you know, we are, the, the concept of an individual is purely arbitrary. We're all walking communities. We're all walking ecosystems. We'll come to a, a big cause of wonder, and that's your senses. Darwin wrote, Nature has evolved organs of extreme perfection and complication, which justly excite our admiration. So British. (laughs) Nature has evolved organs of extreme perfection and complication, which justly excite our admiration. 
Yes, for instance, you may know this, but there's no sound in the world. I'm up here flapping my lips and my tongue in a particular pattern, creating disturbances in the air that then flows and hits the drum of your ear, which then moves three little bones. Used to be part of fish jaws. And that wiggles, that wiggles some little liquid, a pool of liquid, which then moves some little hairs that excite the auditory nerves that then go to the auditory center of the brain and create what you, we call sound. But there's no sound out here. This amazing, you know, uh, jerry-rigged system <laughs> is so that, uh, you know, it's a Rube Goldberg kind of device so that you can read events happening at a distance, you know. And not only do you automatically hear sound, uh, you know, a sound is produced inside of you, but you instantly create meaning out of it. Or pluck music from the air. It's a phenomenal, phenomenal instrument. The sight, your sight. Look around you. You're looking at a fantastic 3D, ever-changing masterpiece painted by the greatest painter that ever lived. Your eyes and brain. Because you're not seeing the original. You're producing it in your head. Photons are hitting the the retina of your eye. A hundred million receptor cells, something like that. Then sending electrical signals. the, The picture isn't getting sent to the visual cortex of your brain. It's electrical signals traveling down the, the, uh, the optic nerve millions of fibers and millions and trillions, you know. (laughs) And your brain receives those uh, electrical signals and kind of does a conference call, all the parts of the brain. (laughs) And then it repaints the picture for you over and over again, second after second after second, deciding what you need to see. And, And it does it all for you. I mean, there's no color in the universe. The rods and cones in your eyes are putting the hues on all, on all this clothing. And we are this miracles going on all the time. You're an, you're an artist. You don't have to practice the piano or anything. You know, <laughs> you're creating a symphony every time you listen to one, and and every time you look, you're you're painting a masterpiece. Darwin again. To suppose that the eye could have been formed by natural selection, you know, by increments over millions and millions of years, seems, I confess, absurd in the highest degree. (laughs) Remember, the eye is just a small piece of flesh built of sugars, fats, water, and a little protein, and yet it has millions of precisely calibrated moving parts. 
So your mind and senses are the true creators of this whole sound and light show. Alfred North Whitehead wrote, The various qualities of the world are purely the creations of the mind. Nature always gets credit, which should in truth be reserved for ourselves. The rose for its scent, the nightingale for its song, the sun for its radiance. The poets are mistaken. They should address their lyrics to themselves. The brain. Are you ready for the brain? (laughs) Processes an estimated 11 million bits of information a second. Sorts through it, decides what's important, and gives you a moment-by-moment understanding of your reality. A map of the world that you're moving through, that you're in, a map of your own body, your own self. 11 million bits of information a second. Giving you a moment-to-moment picture of reality, all for the sake of your survival and enjoyment sometimes. Meanwhile, the latest neuroscience is realizing that there is no director. Nobody's home. (laughs) Turns out the brain is actually a self-organizing system. And uh, most of our reactions and decisions and Interpretations of reality take place on what the scientists call a a non-personal or a subconscious level. Time magazine, way back in 1997 or something like that, a lot has changed in the world of neuroscience since then, but... 1997, Time Magazine put out a cover story called In Search of the Mind, which was a report on the latest neuroscience, you know, almost two decades ago. And it was a cover story, and I was looking at it, and uh, I'm sure a lot of people were shocked to realize that the mind was lost and would have been even more shocked to read this article and realize that the scientists can't find it. This was the last sentence in the article, which I took down and continue to laugh over. Despite our every instinct to the contrary, consciousness is not some entity inside the brain that corresponds to self, some kernel of awareness that runs the show. After more than a century of looking for it, brain researchers have concluded that such a self simply does not exist. (laughs) Period. This was in Time magazine. <laughs> Why wasn't there a national panic of some kind? <laughs> the Time magazine's telling us the self does not exist. I like this little piece from neuroscientist Daniel Dennett. He says, you enter the brain through the eye, march up the optic nerve, round and round the cortex, looking behind every neuron and... Then before you know it, you emerge into daylight on the spike of a motor nerve impulse, scratching your head, wondering where the self is. (laughs) 
the beauty is that we really we really get some glimpses in in meditation practice. We really get some personal up close looks at what science is discovering, and it, we can we can start to make those scientific revelations personal, which means make them a, a part of our spiritual growth, our our own understanding of who we are and how interconnected we are and how marvelous the you know creation is in and of itself without any interference on our part meditation practice makes makes all this new science come alive it's really so exciting to be present for this you know uh, this time in history and to have both our 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 practice and our uh, the Buddhist wisdom and the wisdom of all cultures and our scientific uh, revolution. <laughs> so, what is life? The great mystery. We, at least we found the molecule DNA. Seems to be the molecule that separates life from non-life. The four chemical compounds, and depending on how they're arranged in this long string of coded information, a DNA molecule will contribute to the growth of an ant or a sequoia, a rose, a human being. It's this kind of miraculous molecule, this miraculous substance. You've ever seen, of course, you've seen the the picture, you know, the spiral. It almost looks like a yin-yang symbol, you know, it's like there's something very spiritually vibrating in that that spiral, that double helix. As you may know, you share about 90 9.99999% 9.99999% of your DNA with the person sitting next to you. Almost identical. The instructions for building and maintaining you are almost exactly the same as the instructions for building and maintaining me and the Dalai Lama and uh, George Bush and uh, Oprah Winfrey and Mother Teresa and all of our differences, our, our idiosyncrasies and our IQs, and it's just a thin layer of paint making the difference over the basic human design. I think it's, it's what, the point is more obvious when you know that you share over 98% of your DNA with the great apes and nearly 90% with mice. Most of the instructions for building and maintaining you are instructions for a basic mammal. It takes a lot of information to build a basic mammal with a digestive system and a nervous system and a, and a physical structure and the bones and the, and the organs and the senses. and That's volumes and volumes and volumes worth of information that we share with mammals, all mammals. We share nearly 70% of our DNA with worms. I hope you're not offended to think that, of, that, of that. Worms actually invented, uh, our, invented the spine. 
Come on, say it loud. I'm a vertebrate and I'm proud. Come on. You... <laughs> we owe a lot to the worm. Not only did they, if you really want to know, not only did they invent the spine, they prepared the soil for the plant kingdom. I mean, they, if it wasn't for the worms, we would not, not have been become who we are. We share nearly 50% of our DNA. Are you ready? With yeast. <laughs> so, if we declare ourselves divine in some way, do we include the slime in that divinity? Where do we draw the line? Who gets a soul? There's a great uh, t-shirt put out by the biology department at Santa Cruz it says, you share 25% of your DNA with bananas. Get over yourself. <laughs> but each... Let, let me give you this last statistic here before we start to close. and That is that... You're a being, life has gone from a single-celled being to a being with a hundred trillion cells. That's you. You have a hundred, approximately a hundred trillion cells in your body. Each is, you know, a millionth of a millionth of a pinhead large. But inside of each of your cells is a drop of seawater. Floating in that drop of seawater is two yards of DNA. DNA is one of the thinnest molecules known, just a couple atoms wide. And it's wrapped around itself over and over again inside every one of your cells so that there's two yards of DNA in each one of your cells, a hundred trillion cells. If you stretched your DNA out end to end, it would go around the planet several million times. 126 billion miles of DNA inside of you. So what, you know? <laughs> You're a phenomenal creature, you know? E.O. Wilson again, the great biologist. The chances of producing a human being through random chance in the universe, you know, that there's not something going on. The chances of producing a human being through random chance in the universe is like a hurricane blowing through a junkyard and producing a 747. So, be here, wow. I, I offer you this reflection to use when you get, a, get cynical or need a hit of wonder. You can devise your own, change it, collect your own facts that make you astonished, that make you excited, delight you. Things that gladden the heart because they are seeming miracles. One simple way to arouse wonder and awe is to sit in meditation and to 
have a complete beginner's mind and feel your aliveness and with a kind of koan in your mind, what, what is this? Where did it come from? This breath, bringing me the atmosphere, exchanging gases, this sign of life. What is this warm, energized, self-regulating, self-knowing, pulsing, vibratory field of mystery? Hafiz, once more. O wondrous creatures, by what strange miracle do you so often not smile? I've seen you today, you're smiling more. We'll sit for a moment. Enjoy. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.